and welcome to Revolutionary Women. My name is Tess Silverman. Women around the world are constantly creating ways to make a difference in their communities, and today's guest is no exception. My guest today is Cynthia Changyet Levin. Levin is an American activist for global health and education. In 2003, she left a career in automotive engineering to become a stay-at-home mom. It was during this period when she decided to devote her time and energy to advocacy. She's a former staff member and board member for Results and Results Educational Fund, an international anti-poverty advocacy group. She blogs about parenting and advocacy in the Anti-Poverty Mom blog and is the author of the upcoming book, From Changing Diapers to Changing the World, Why Moms Make Great Advocates and How to Get Started. Thank you, Cindy. Thank you for coming on the show. Thank you. I'm so happy to be here. I am very excited to talk about your work in advocacy, but I want to find out where that started. Uh, where did that come from? And I would like a little background. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so I'm going to date myself and tell you that uh, I grew up in the early 1970s and in the 80s with um, two parents and a sister in Moorhead, Minnesota. Uh, that's really the same community as Fargo, North Dakota, right across a river. Uh, both my parents were PhDs and they valued education very highly. So I was a pretty nerdy kid and pretty happy about turning any dollars I could even get my hands on into quarters to go into arcade games. Um, so I'd say it was a pretty happy childhood, except for my dad passing away when I was 12. Uh, so when you talk about revolutionary women, I'm happy to say that my mom was very influential in setting a, a strong example of a woman who displayed community leadership and provided for her family. Um, she was um, somebody who got me involved in, in campfire scouting groups, and um, I remember handing out flyers at League of Women Voters uh, meetings and things like that. So that was probably the beginning of um, me seeing um, civics in action, even though um, at those young ages, I was, you know, still really interested in my Pac-Man high score. So <laughs> that's great. Well, that's good to, uh, to hear about your background. Uh, so you were talking about your mom raising you when your dad passed away, was that a hard transition for you having your dad pass away so early in your childhood? And did that make an impact in terms of how you saw your mom providing for you? Uh, yeah, I think so. I mean, it's always difficult. Um, those tween ages I'm seeing now as I have, um, uh, young daughters that, uh, those tween ages are, are very, um, uh, they're very delicate times <laughs> for mm -hmm. young girls. And I was really struck by how different uh, things were turning out in my life um, compared to another friend of mine who lost her father around the same time, um, whose mother had a, a different background. And uh, my mom was well-educated and she had a job and we knew we were still going to college and things like that. So I saw um, through another friend how things could be very, very uncertain um, when uh, education had not played a big part in her mom's life and her mom hadn't been working. So um, later, as we'll talk about, 
I became a stay-at-home mom myself. And I think that that was always, you know, a fear that was in my mind of, you know, what happens if I don't have a job and I'm not working. Um, I could later see my value as a, a global health advocate and some different choices that I made. Um, but that that core uh, value of education was always really, really important um, because of my experiences with my dad passing away. That's really uh, great to know that um, your the background and your I'm sorry your experiences that you had to go through also made an impact in your seeing other people with you know who struggled with. Um, possibly not having enough education or going forward with it. Can you tell me what prompted you to become an advocate or was advocacy already like in your head growing up because of what you've gone through? Oh, no. no, no. (laughs) (laughs) I think I didn't really understand um, um, the role of advocacy back then uh, when I was in high school, I took American government class and I learned about the three branches of American government. And I learned about the importance of voting and things like that. But I think what was really missing in that piece of education was the idea that citizens and everyday residents can actually be involved in policy setting. Um, That was not something that I knew about until well after um, I had graduated from college, um, I didn't understand that uh, beyond voting, which is happens on election day, that there are 364 other days in the year when we can be raising our voices and um, making our opinions known to our members of Congress, to our elected officials um, on the local level and on the federal level. yeah, that was something that I had no idea about when I was a kid. And one of the reasons that I'm so happy to talk about it on a podcast like this, to let people know how influential that we can be, even when we're not holding offices ourselves. Right. That's so, that really is important. So can you tell me how you got involved with advocacy as more of what you are doing now. I mean, you know, you're definitely involved in results and care, but I'd like you to expound more on how you got into that um, and where that started. Yeah. For me, it started with motherhood um, because I had a career um, starting at General Motors and working with some automotive suppliers. um, And I consider myself very busy with that. And, um, It was not until I took a break and I left my job to uh, raise my first daughter that I had time to sit and reflect. Um, It was really those moments in darkness. Um, I was living in Chicago at the time. There's some pretty dark winters there that kept us all inside and, and bundled up. But uh, when my husband was sleeping and the baby had woken me up and deep hours of the night, I would feel really uncertain about whether I could care for her. And um, there was probably some postpartum depression going on there. And um, I was having difficulty nursing, so I was not sure I could take care of her. And that's when I really started to have empathy that 
almost every mother in the world feels this in some way, feels uncertain, feels not sure if we're going to be enough to rise to the task. Um, and in the daylight hours, I would start thinking about how, oh, I'm really okay. I, I can feed mm. her. We can get through this. Um, but there are other moms in the world that where my fears were their reality. Um, so that's when I started thinking that I really need to do something. I would listen to um, NPR um, and listen to like all the terrible things that were happening in the world. There was um, earthquakes and, um, you know, just the hunger and the need that goes on in the world. And I was feeling really far away from being able to, um, uh, to affect things or to make things better. Thankfully, there was somebody at my church, and this is a great example of uh, women lifting women up, right? Um, that, uh, this woman at the church saw how I was feeling. She was a mom herself, and uh, she knew that we were needing a new leader for the Bread for the World organization at our church. It's an uh, anti-hunger organization that's faith-based. And um, she invited me to get involved and... Um, I became the organizer at my church and they taught me how to write letters to Congress, how to write letters to the editor, um, to be in my local newspaper and send those in to my member of Congress. Um, and going to um, a national conference for Bread for the World helped me see that we could go to DC and actually sit down with members of Congress. Now, unfortunately, that particular year, I had to get back before I went to their lobby day. So I didn't get to see my member of Congress at that time. Um, but the following year, I really wanted to go and do it. And it turned out that Bread didn't have a gathering. So I had to seek out another organization called Results. Um, and I'm so glad I did. I mean, every organization has wonderful, positive things about their culture. But I really uh, clicked with um, what I saw at results when I went to Washington, D.C. I saw people who were bold, people who were committed. Um, and above all, I saw people who had a really nonpartisan, relational-based uh, philosophy of advocacy, seeing members of Congress as humans themselves and um, a way of connecting constituents with their um, members of Congress uh, in a, a really humanizing way that um, I see can be very world-changing uh, if we have the persistence and empathy to carry through with it. That's a great way to get into from being a mom of going through your needs of wanting to do something better for your children and then being involved with Bread for the World and, and, th and then going forward with results. For those who don't know anything about results, can you tell the listeners what results is and what they do? Oh, absolutely. And thanks for asking. So results is an anti-poverty organization and it's a movement of passionate, committed, everyday people. Um, that's their words, and I love the idea that they put the idea, they put the word every day in there because it's teachers, it's doctors, it's stay-at-home moms, it's all sorts of um, 
people who live in the United States and care about poverty. Um, together, we raise our voices to influence political decisions that bring an end to poverty. Um, it's really volunteer driven. And as volunteers, we get training and support and inspiration to become skilled advocates. And in time, if we're doing our job right, we learn to effectively advise members of Congress. We want to guide them towards decisions that improve access to health and education, economic opportunity. Um, I happen to work more on the global side of things to fight global poverty, but we also have groups that work on uh, poverty within the United States. And um, mm. my favorite part of it is just that together we realize the incredible power that we all possess within ourselves. And um, we use that power with our voices to really do nothing less than change the world. So that's, uh, that's results in a nutshell. That's really, that's a great way to get people involved for sure. You know, being there in person and making sure that you are, your voices are heard mm -hmm. and make, and doing the acts, the actions to actually get problems resolved. That's really awesome. When you got involved with Bread for the World initially and then results eventually, sure. was there an aha moment for you that spoke to you and said, okay, this is what I really want to do? Yes, I remember that very, very clearly. I had gone to, um, like I said before, I'd gone to Washington, D.C. with results wanting that lobbying ex experience, wanting to sit down face to face with members of Congress. And uh, I was along with two gentlemen, uh, Richard Smiley of Chicago and Oscar Lanzi. Um, they had been uh, advocates for much longer than I had. They were kind of walking me through the experience. Um, we, Because there are so many members of Congress in the Chicago area, you can spend all day talking to just Chicago area people. Um, but we visited, we were from different areas of Chicago. So uh, we lived in different districts and we visited theirs and we visited our uh, senators. And the very last meeting of the day was with Congresswoman Jan Schakowsky uh, with her office. And um, I was the constituent for that meeting. And Oscar and Richard had been leading those meetings and doing a great job. And I would just chime in with my little practiced uh, pieces when I had a story to tell or something like that. And just before we went in the office, uh, Richard said to me, uh, you're leading this meeting, Cindy. I'm like, um, hmm. oh, okay. I don't really think that I'm qualified. I, I would really rather not. And he's like, no, you're the constituent. She wants to hear from you more than us. And, um, I just had it on the paper that we had an appointment with the office. I didn't know who it would be with, if it would be an aide or, I didn't know anything back then, Tess. <laughs> so we walked in the door and the Congresswoman herself uh, walked through a different door and I said something brilliant like, hey, there you are, <laughs> because I was so eloquent at the time. Uh, but then we all sat down and I led this meeting and um, I had been watching these two gentlemen do it all day long. Um, so I did it just fine. Um, we got to a certain point in the meeting where I asked her for something and she said, um, yeah, I don't, I'm not sure I agree with this point. And I thought, oh no, I explained it wrong. So I tried to explain it again. And then I looked at Richard and 
he explained it again, pretty much just like I did. And she's like, well, don't get me wrong. I'm going to sign uh, this letter that you're asking me to sign. But I just agree, disagree on this one point. I'd like you to tell results about it. And I was like, oh, okay. And I walked out of the door thinking my worst nightmare had come true. You know, I had said something and she'd said no. <laughs> and I got through it, but I built that relationship. And I was like, ah, I understand what this is all about now. Um, that this is a back and forth and I'm supposed to go and talk to her again later. And um, I never wanted to turn back after that. There's just something really thrilling about sitting down and having, looking your elected official in the eye and making a, a real connection that way. So, yeah. Wow. That's really awesome that you went from just being, you know, just going with them mm -hmm. to being the spokesperson, basically. Yep. And <laughs> airing out your, airing out the issues. And you had to make sure that she heard you. And even when you said it more than once, you know, you still had to explain it, but in a way you did make a relationship out of it. You made a connection, Yeah, which is awesome. I think I phrased it that my worst nightmare came true, but that's not the worst thing. Somebody saying no is not the worst thing. Um, it's far worse never to have the conversation. <laughs> it's something that I've come to understand and appreciate. But it actually opened doors for more communication, for more, you know, for, for approaching and um, approaching more people about the issues that you're concerned with. Absolutely. And I continued to visit with that office for almost 10 years. That was my first meeting uh, with her. And uh, by the time that uh, I had moved to St. Louis, uh, I went up to D.C. to meet with my St. Louis area representatives. And I remember uh, Representative Jan Schakowsky calling my name that she saw me in the hallway and recognized me. And I was like, wow, like that's how far you can come when you're really dedicated to that, that she would know me on site, know my name, know why I was there. I just wasn't her constituent anymore. So I was a little sad about that, but it was time to move on to the Missouri uh, delegation and make new relationships for my, the new community I had just moved to. That must've been quite, I guess you must've felt like, wow, I, no, I did something and it's, you know, she remembers me. That's awesome. Yeah. And, and she remembers that, you know, I was here for a reason. Yep. I can't wow. think of a better reason to be known for something is, you know, somebody's mm -hmm. uh, fighting for uh, food and medicine and uh, to save kids' lives. That's, that's something I could be known for. Not a bad thing to be known for, for sure. <laughs> so do you think, well, we're, we're on, we're currently in a pandemic. Do you think that the poverty situation has gotten worse because of it, either locally or globally? And what do you think results can do about that? Uh, it's undeniably gotten worse and on a local level as well as a global level. Uh, we're seeing data coming from uh, world organizations, I believe it was a World Food Program that uh, put out their estimates that said, I think is uh, 135 million people were experiencing hunger. Uh, but if things keep going the way they are with COVID-19, that it's probably going to be um, 
next year, uh, 260 million. So we're looking at almost a doubling of um, people experiencing hunger in the world. Um, I'm not the first person to say this next bit, but I'll add my voice to the chorus that I don't believe that COVID-19 is actually showing us um, uh, a lot of different things. I think it's exposing um, all of the cracks in our safety nets uh, here mm -hmm. in St. Louis, in the United States, and around the world. Um, I work a lot of on uh, immunizations, and uh, this is very alarming that uh, we've had a disruption of um, of uh, parents bringing their kids in for immunizations around the world. Um, so there is an organization called Gavi, the Vaccine Alliance, and um, they are responsible for vaccinating almost half of the world's children. They especially are looking at um, developing nations um, where people are living in poverty um, and increasing. That's it's always they were about twenty years old, and they've been working on increasing access um, in these communities and populations. But what we're seeing is when we had isolation shutdown and um, a general pulling back of uh, people coming in to seek out um, healthcare that uh, we're seeing kids not getting their measles um, vaccinations, polio, um, so we're working really hard to make sure um, Gavi has what they need and that they can provide PPE and um, you know all the extra things they need to make sure that this doesn't turn into a multi-disease pandemic. Um, tuberculosis, we, we had that disease on the run <laughs> for many years. We were seeing like some great progress just uh, recently. And um, all of a sudden we've seen, um, you know, a lack of being able to uh, diagnose tuberculosis early and with an airborne tricky disease like that, uh, when you don't, uh, when you're not able to catch it early, then um, the spread can be tr quite dramatic. So uh, yeah, in a nutshell, things are getting worse. And um, yeah. Do you think that poverty and access to healthcare are related and how is it, how can we, um, or can anyone like make it so, uh, I guess my, my question is, are they connected and what are we doing to make sure that whoever needs it gets it, whoever needs access to healthcare as well as food for those who are poverty stricken. Yeah, I mean, there is undeniably a connection between healthcare and poverty. Um, when I used to do things like uh, work at my local uh, food banks and soup kitchens, I was thinking, oh, I'm, I'm doing something about poverty. And I, I was to an extent, um, but really what I wasn't seeing uh, back then before I became an advocate is that uh, lack of access to health care is one of those root causes of poverty uh, that was making um, you know hunger uh, a symptom of that um, because without health care 
you don't have healthy adults that can um, be breadwinners um, in our country here in the United States. A lot of us are only one health crisis away from financial ruin. Um, mm. uh, it's, healthcare can be um, healthcare can be uh, a reason that somebody wouldn't have a home, for instance, uh, because if you um, are spending all of your money on your medical bills, you might not be paying rent and um, that undeniably makes things um, much worse. So what can we do about it? Um, because <laughs> I don't like to get um, so far spiraling down into doom and gloom without um, providing any hope. I think that um, we were on the right track with the Affordable Care Act, um, that we want to um, provide affordable care to as many Americans as possible. Um, we want to do things like, uh, get involved, like I just mentioned, with housing. Um, <laughs> housing and healthcare kind of flip-flop back and forth and as far as importance, because right now in a pandemic, housing is healthcare. If you aren't able to have a safe, stable place to shelter and um, you know be quarantined around away from other people when you need it, um, then you might be spreading COVID or exposing yourself to COVID-19. Um, so that's another thing that uh, I have been working on with my results colleagues uh, who work on U.S. poverty is uh, trying to um, get a moratorium on evictions um, and trying to pass a renter's uh, tax credit. Um, various tax policies don't sound very exciting, but they keep people in their homes and that can really save people's lives at this point. Um, so that's a couple of things in the United States that, that we're working on. Um, broadly in the um, global health arena, uh, what we're trying to do in the United States is um, get some support within the COVID relief packages. We've had a couple mm -hmm. of them passed and there's another one on the table. Uh, we have not yet seen the US step up um, to provide um, foreign assistance um, for um, COVID-19 relief. Um, so we're asking uh, for uh, 20 billion actually, and that sounds like a huge, huge number, but compared to what the global need is at this point, and it's not just for vaccines, it's also for, as I mentioned, tuberculosis, um, assistance, it's for sanitation, it's for hunger. Um, that's, a, that's a reasonable number that's uh, going to be needed at some point. The U.S. has always been a leader in providing um, assistance for global health um, until this point. Um, so we're going to need to see some of that cooperation uh, happening. Um, it's very difficult to get things to happen before an election, though. <laughs> that is for sure. I get that, yeah. And speaking of the election, it is coming up. And do you see that part of what is going on right now could impact the voting, uh, uh, people voting, and hopefully whatever the results are could help towards the issues that you have enumerated, you know, in local and international? 
so the first part of your question, you're you're wondering if the like these issues will impact um, being able to get out to to vote. Yeah. Yes. Uh, yep. Uh, this is uh, every state has its own um, election policies, but I'll just give a few examples of how this is playing out in my community. Uh, I live in Missouri, and um, we do not. We have some pretty complicated mail-in <laughs> procedures. Um, we have absentee ballots, and we have mail-in ballots. And in our state, COVID nineteen is not um, a, a, a fear of spreading or contracting COVID nineteen isn't a good enough reason um, just to get an absentee ballot. So um, here in my state. Uh, uh, I had to request a mail-in ballot and say that COVID-19 was a reason that I wanted to do that. And then I had to get my ballot notarized, which is, uh, you know, it doesn't cost anything, but it's a step that's more difficult for some people than others. Um, and I know that it was enacted, um, that policy um, to prevent fraud in voting and things like that. Um, but it's a, it's a difficult thing. Um, and then, for instance... Uh, our polling place, I used to vote at a little church um, by my house, and um, that little church setup is not safe for uh, distancing and things like that. So um, I see that they've moved to a big field house that is not very, very far away. Um, but I've been talking to my neighbors and um, hardly anybody was aware of the change in polling place location. So I think uh, a lot of these things can be overcome. Uh, but it's no doubt making things more difficult. Um, so those were a few local examples. I know in other states, uh, there are far fewer voting locations as they're trying to find big places that would be safe for everybody. And a lot of times those are less convenient for people to get to. Um, so the safer it is, sometimes that means the farther it is from where somebody um, is actually living or working. The polling place that had to be moved to a different place because it was bigger and possibly safer, mm -hmm. it was not promoted? We haven't seen it promoted anywhere. Like uh, I had to go and search for that, like going to, uh, I believe, .org is where I went and um, it was to find your polling place. It's a, a national website that that filters down. Um, uh, but I have not um, like seen a mailing or, or anything like that. And what I would tell my neighbors about it, it was just general kind of shock and surprise. Like we've always voted at the church. Um, so for my part, and this is what I would encourage everybody to, to do um, in instances like this, it's like, think about what can you do to get the word out? So I've actually contacted that church where I used to worship at one time. So I still know some people over there and um, I'm asking them like, can you put that on the sign <laughs> for the weeks coming up before the election? Just so that people yeah, know. When just they so, just so people will know about it. Wow. Maybe you're the person that sees what needs to be done to get a sign changed. And you might be affecting two or 300 votes by doing something like that. I think it's um, disturbing, uh, or not disturbing, but it is interesting that you'd have to now, in order to vote safely, you'd have to have more steps to get to the place you'd have to vote in. And 
I don't, I mean, that sounds counterintuitive when you think about it, because then you're really exposing yourself to, you're exposing yourself to other people more so than you would have if you had just sent in the mail-in ballot. Right. That's got to be frustrating. <laughs> I think there are, there are many frustrated people out there, and we're only a couple of weeks away from the voting, so... Um... I have uh, a dear friend of mine that um, has just, I mean, she was really planning on going and voting in person and like really looking forward to that. And she made that decision because she wanted to make sure her vote was in there. She didn't want it to be lost in the mail. And uh, just in the last couple of days, she's contracted pneumonia. She's in the hospital right now. So we're kind of scrambling to get her ballot to her um, so that her husband can turn it in for her absentee. Uh, because uh, even if she has a very quick turnaround, she's go- still going to be at risk for uh, COVID-19 if she has um, such severe pneumonia right now. So you never know what's going to happen. Vote <laughs> early if you can. Yeah, and like you said, we're only a few weeks away from it. Oh, well, I'd like to talk about another organization you're involved with is CARE. Can you talk about CARE a little bit? Yeah. Uh, So I'm a fairly new CARE volunteer. Um, I went to their annual conference um, just a couple of years ago. And what really attracted me to CARE is their emphasis on uh, women and girls. Um, They're working on many of the same issues, but they are unapologetically and um, enthusiastically supportive of women and girls and the particular challenges uh, that they face around the world. Um, So something that you will find care involved in that other organizations will sometimes shy away from is, um, you know, um, protection from sexual assault in refugee camps or um, within maternal child health care, which many organizations take on. Uh, care will step up and say, look, we're going to talk about um, reproductive health and we're going to talk about uh, birth control um, because in some instances, um, you know, it's, it's no longer safe or healthy um, for a woman to, uh, a woman to give birth. Like if she, um, if she's in a dangerous um situation because of war or um, general lack of health care or things like that, um, the maternal mortality rate can be so much higher in some more um, areas of the world that uh, they go ahead and, and they talk about that, um, which is a very uncomfortable topic for many of our um, members of Congress um, to take on. Um, it shouldn't be. This should be a fact of life that we're that we're addressing. Um, I would love to see as many healthy babies born as we can uh, as we can support. I do not want to see uh, mothers dying uh, because they don't have um, access to uh, qualified midwives and doctors and things like that. So uh, that's one of the reasons that I got involved with them, um, and they are very dedicated to. Uh, bringing and training up their members and bringing them to um, Washington, D.C. as well. So can you tell me if are they involved with 
uh, I guess, creating initiatives to make sure, or policies, are they involved with policies with um, making sure that whatever is needed for um, global issues, mm -hmm. t are they tackling it along with policymakers or are they yep. contacting local leaders? Uh, it's more on the federal level um, that I've been involved in, in any case. Um, like, for instance, one of the things that they're involved in is the Safe for the Start Act. Um, we have an, a huge, just a record number of um, refugees um, in the world right now. And I have to believe uh, that that is uh, being severely impacted by COVID-19 as well. Um, but we were working on that prior to COVID as well. Um, there are initiatives like within that Safe from the Start Act that look at best practices um, to keep women and girls safe at the beginning of a humanitarian crisis, as opposed to having them flood into refugee camps and then saying, oh, you know what, we should have good lighting to make sure that um, uh, women and girls aren't sexually assaulted at night. And we should make sure that we have uh, appropriate uh, latrine facilities and things like that so that, uh, that they're not in danger when they have to go, um, you know, use the facilities. And uh, one thing I should mention about CARE that I didn't before is that they are also a direct service organization. Most of the organizations that I work with are solely advocacy, uh, but CARE is uh, the same organization uh, that is famous for care packages. Like sometimes you hear about, oh, we're gonna get send a care package to my daughter in college or something like that. That came from uh, packages that CARE used to send out um, after World War II to um, help families to have the food and medicine that they need. I never knew that. Yeah, that's interesting. Cool. Huh, that is very cool. I, I mean, you were talking about initiatives like making sure there's a latrine for girls so they and and lighting so they're they feel safer mm -hmm. when when they have to go to the bathroom or at least even when they're walking somewhere are are those initiatives being um discussed between um care as well as let's say global um global leaders or is it just primarily u.s going into um you know, U.S. dealing with care, like the U.S. policymakers dealing with care? Uh, well, CARE is an international organization, so I, oh, it yeah, is. Okay. so I'm sure CARE in other countries, volunteers are, are working with their um, elected officials. I only um, happen to work with the, the ones that are here in the United States, since that's where I am. Do you know if they've had pushback from getting initiatives that would help refugees? Here in the United States, it's not necessarily that we're getting pushback on helping refugees. It's a matter of getting attention while every other flipping thing is happening. <laughs> mm -hmm. Because, um, you know, we have elections happening. We have COVID happening. Um, I mean, we have uh, arguments about the U.S. Postal Service happening this year. <laughs> Um, yeah, so yeah. I think that um, in, within my answer to this is also just sort of a statement about what the job of an advocate is. Um, mm -hmm. I 
have dedicated myself to working on global poverty. And um, I do this um, partly because of my faith. I do it partly because of um, women that I've met um, traveling with the United Nations Foundation who were recipients of this kind of help. I do it on behalf of girls that I've met and, and boys in schools that um, were in orphanages in Uganda. And it is my role as an advocate to always keep them at the forefront, whatever other craziness is going on in my country. I have dedicated myself to um, being in partnership with them to lift up their voices when they can't be here in the United States. Um, I, I would never want to say that I'm a voice for the voiceless because their voices are really strong and awesome. They just don't happen to be here in Missouri <laughs> where I can talk to um, Representative Ann Wagner, who sits on uh, some very important committees that deal with foreign affairs. Wow. Well, so moving forward, what is your goal for results? Uh, well, um, my goal for results is that we find some really great young act activists with incredible energy. And I don't just mean that we just want the young ones, but I think that, uh, I think that we owe it our, to ourselves to be looking for advocates that are going to be in this for, for the long haul for a long time. Um, and to finding some very diverse voices. Um, I am really happy that since the time that I got involved with results that we can now say that we're covering all 50 states. Um, it, I mean, the organization has been around um, since the 1980s, um, but it was only um, in the last handful of years that we could say that we were truly covering every single senator. And I would love to be able to say in an, you know another five, 10 years that we would be in all um, every congressional district. So um, I would like to see that and to see a lot of, of, um, of diverse voices that will be dedicated for a long time with us. That's a great goal yeah. for results. Well, okay, speaking of goals, what would your goal be for yourself? My personal goal? <laughs> yes, your personal goal. Uh, I would say I, I have one main personal goal, uh, well, in addition to you know, being a mother, that's a pretty big goal, but that's kind of an ongoing one, right? I don't think that one really yeah. <laughs> stops. Yeah. Um, but a really concrete goal that I have for myself is to um, get my book published. I am uh, finishing up this book called uh, From Changing Diapers to Changing the World, um, Why Moms Make Great Advocates and How to Get Started. And oh, yeah, I'd like to know. Okay, so what was the inspiration for that? For the title? Yes. <laughs> and, for, and, for, and for the book. Oh, sure. Um, I think the inspiration for the book itself was that uh, I found myself, uh, I was blogging about my experiences. And I, as I would move about, I would find myself running into more and more women who we're getting more frustrated looking at social justice situations in our country and just feeling unable to do anything about it. 
And it reminded me of how I was feeling when I was sitting back in that dark room, breastfeeding alone and those feelings of hopelessness that would be there. And I really wanted to see if there were a way that I could reach more women to move them to from being negative and passive about things to to usher them along to being active and positive. And it seemed like uh, the book might be a good way to consolidate a lot of things that I'd talked about in the blog for, you know, over the years and to put together something that I wish that I had, like, I wish I had a handbook Mm. that somebody could have just like walked up and given me and said, I think you need this. And this tells you Mm. exactly how to, how do you call a member of Congress? How do you write a letter to the editor? What's a protest like? Should I do it with my kids? Sometimes the answer is no, by the way. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it depends on the protest mm-hmm. and it depends on the kids. Mm-hmm. Um, All right. And I just thought that for me, it required me quitting my job and taking that time and being with my kids and doing a lot of things by trial and error. But the truth is nobody has to quit their job to do this kind of work you can get started right away. The reason that it kind of required me doing that is because I was kind of making up some of the rules as I was going. And I thought Mm -hmm. if I wrote this book that anybody could have access to it and um, it would just streamline it for other women in a way that I had to do it sort of the clumsy way around. (laughs) Well, I don't think it's, I, I think it's very empowering and I love the title. And I can't wait to when when it gets published. Thank you. And I'm going to make sure that it gets promoted. <laughs> Thank you. I think it's amazing. I, I when I read the title, I'm like, huh, that's something I probably would have wanted to read. You know, <laughs> but that's awesome. What would what would you tell young people about advocacy and how could they get started with that? I would tell people, and I am telling people because it's right here on this podcast. Mm-hmm. I tell them that there has never been a better time to get connected in advocacy. I mean, really, when I started doing this in you know 2007 or something like that, I was sort of hunting around on Facebook trying to find somebody who also felt that way and it's like oh should I you know google search some of these different advocacy organizations and see if maybe somebody else is on twitter but now it's like if you get the right hashtags (laughs) you can find a ton of people who feel the way that you do and um I would say even since 2016 um prior to President Trump's election I was having to go out there and like uh, educate people on the fact that you could call Congress on the phone. You, you can call your senators on the phone and you should leave them messages and things like that. And now in 2020, it's like, oh, everybody knows that. <laughs> it's not, mm. it's not yeah. a, a secret anymore. And in fact, people are getting a little tired of it. It's like, oh, I keep calling and I just leave a message and I never hear back. And so now it's more about uh, what are the most effective things to do? Um, and I would say that there are so many organizations that are, uh, that are popping up to, um, provide support. Um, 
So that's my message is that there's never been a better time with um, all the social media connectivity and uh, savviness of the people out there. And number two, get involved with a reputable advocacy organization for the cause that you want to, um, uh, that you want to influence. Um, because being involved uh, with an organization is not only going to help you be effective at the right time and help you know when things are happening and moving on the hill, but it will also connect you with other passionate people that will keep you inspired. Um, and inspiration is so sorely needed right now. I would say in 2020, mm -hmm. uh, you know, despair and isolation is um, a reality for a lot of us. So anytime that you can connect with other people who are passionate and inspiring, um, you're going to combat that and um, be more effective and be happier and more fulfilled and more powerful and all those good things. And it's very true. I think the more you see out there that inspires you, the more you'd want to do. Mm -hmm. You know, if you keep listening to people that probably speak the same, that speak the same issues that you speak about or that you believe in, then you'll definitely get involved. Uh, so is there anything that you wish you had done years ago? And if there was, what would that, what would that be? <laughs> if there's one thing that you could, is there's one thing to change that you would wish you had done years ago? So this is where we're going to depart from the advocacy speak for a while, because I think it's pretty <laughs> clear for me what I wish that I had done uh, earlier years ago is I would have gotten involved in um, martial arts much earlier. That's something I came to uh, later in life. And I'll, I'll say with a, a little bit of a, a humble brag here that um, I'm just one belt away from being a Taekwondo instructor right now. And um, that's awesome. Yeah, I'm turning 49 next month. And uh, I will say that there are things that I'm sort of physically um, not uh, able to do um, just because of aging and what I had done earlier, maybe some of the things that I did to my knees when I was marathon running in my 20s and things like that. So um, I think uh, getting involved in that earlier would have uh, allowed me to go farther, but I can't have too many regrets because doing it later in life meant that I could do it with my younger daughter, who is exactly the same level as I am. We've moved up together. Oh, that's wonderful. Yeah. That's great. So I don't really regret it that much, but uh, if I had to go back and, and talk to myself, I'd be like, dude, you love this. You should do this now. <laughs> so is that something that you would tell your younger self? Uh, yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah, what would you tell your younger self? It's probably you to go I could back? only tell myself one thing. I guess maybe that wouldn't be the, the hugest thing. I think it would be more um, useful to youthful Cindy to just say, don't be afraid to try new things and don't be afraid to change your mind. Um, and that's just because when I was in high school and college and even as a young working professional, I had a pretty rigid mindset about life decisions. Um, I thought that if I went to engineering school, I'd always be an engineer. And if I took a job with GM, I'd always work on cars. And 
stuff like that. And now I'm so grateful that my eyes were open to taking these different paths. Um, so for me, many of the things that I love happened because I took some risks and tried new things like the Taekwondo. And, um, you know, if I hadn't have tried the new thing of being a stay at home mom, then, um, I would have never, um, come to this love in, in the field of, uh, global health advocacy. And I'm, I'm really feeling like I'm living out of passion right now. So try new things. I love that message. And it's so important, especially now, to try new things and, and be hopeful. Yeah. I love that. I think for a well, lot of us that we've uh, had time to try new things in this year, there's people out there baking bread and knitting and <laughs> doing whatever they're doing. Yeah. yeah. So true because of the pandemic and what it had to and how much it's affected us. That's great. I love that. Well, thank you so much for spending some time with me on this podcast. And I do hope that whoever listens to this will get involved with results and, and care and um, Gabby. Um, and is there anything else you'd like to tell the listeners and how can they, uh, if they wanted to get involved, how would they do so oh. with results or any of the other organizations you're involved in? Sure. Um, you know, a part of it is just, you know, look them up on the web <laughs> like I did. Um, if you'd like to be involved with results, go to www.results.org. And um, we have, I believe, a list of states and cities that we're involved in. And if there's a chapter near you, um, you would be welcome with open arms to come. And if there's not, that's even better from my perspective, because we have this incredible staff of outreach people that can help you start a chapter wherever you are. Um, but if you want to know um, a lot about what I'm working on and, and up to, you're welcome to come to my website, which is www.changyit.com. And uh, uh, I have some resources there for how you can take different advocacy actions and links to my blog, and uh, you can sign up for my news newsletter. Um, so would love to have you along for the ride on social media where I um, put out a lot of different actions um, for people to take. Great. Thank you so much, Cindy. And I look forward to uh, I look forward to getting your book when it gets published. And I hope you keep us posted with uh, what's going on with results um, that you're dealing that you're all the work that you're doing with results. Thank you so much. Tess. It's been a pleasure. Great. Thank you so much. Have a good one. You too. That's our show for today. I've posted more information about Cynthia Levin on RevWoman.com. Thank you for listening, and I hope you'll tune in every Thursday starting November 5th for another episode of Revolutionary Women. You can listen to Revolutionary Women on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast.